This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. If there's one thing that the Kevin McCarthy tapes reveal, is that for the briefest of moments, the minority leader was in possession of a conscious and moral compass. Like the rest of Congress, he was fucking outraged at the events that transpired on January 6th, and the tapes reveal a GOP leader wrestling with the consequences of what Donald Trump and the more extremist elements of his party had wrought. It's too high, the country is too crazy. I do not want to look back and think we caused something or we missed something and someone got hurt. Um, I don't want to play politics with any of that. So what the fuck happened? The Washington Post Philip Bump asked the same question. Was it that McCarthy heard from his caucus or saw from polling that Republican voters were far less concerned than he was about the direction American politics was heading? That Trump, briefly a near-universal pariah, recovered quickly with the base? Was it the same rationalization McCarthy had made so many times before since Donald Trump arrived on the scene that it was easier to let things get a little bit worse than to expend the political capital to make them a whole lot better? Within a week of the riot, the House was moving forward with an impeachment of Trump for his role in the riot. McCarthy, who joined the majority of his caucus in supporting challenges to state election results in the hours after the riot, again publicly joined with House Republicans in opposing the effort. His argument? That holding Trump accountable was itself a threat to political order. I believe impeaching the president in such a short time frame would be a mistake. No investigations have been completed. No hearings have been held. What's more, the Senate has confirmed that no trial will begin until after President-elect Biden is sworn in. But here is what a vote to impeach would do. A vote to impeach would further divide this nation. A vote to impeach will further fan the flames of partisan division. Most Americans want neither inaction nor retribution. They want durable, bipartisan justice. That path is still available, but is not the path we are on today. It does not matter if you are liberal, moderate, or conservative. All of us must resist the temptation of further polarization. Instead, we must unite once again as Americans. I understand for some this call for unity may ring hollow. But times like these are when we must remember who we are as Americans and what we as a nation stand for. And as history shows, unity is not an option, it's a necessity. Five days before, McCarthy had participated in a call with Republican leaders in which he speculated that legislation holding Trump to account might pass and therefore that he might recommend that the president resign. He noted that he hadn't yet spoken with Democrats about what might follow. An important reminder that there was another bipartisan path forward, uniting in opposition to Trump's actions. Um, you know it'll pass the House. I think there's a chance it'll pass the Senate even when he's gone. Um, and I think there's a lot of different ramifications for that. Now, I haven't had a discussion with the Dems that if he did resign, would it not happen? 
Now, this is one personal fear I have. Um, I do not want to get into any conversations about Penn's part or anything like that. I mean, the only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass, and it would be my recommendation we should be done. By the time the moment for that accountability arrived, though, McCarthy was once again aligned with Trump. I mean, how? A few months later, he'd stand to a side as House Republicans ousted Liz Cheney from her leadership position for demanding that Trump's role in January 6th be examined. We're bringing out across our nation's capital today another scathing rebuke of the Republican Party from Republican Liz Cheney, who at one time was the third highest ranking Republican in the House. That was before she was ousted from leadership for daring to tell the truth and criticize the disgraced twice impeached ex-president Cheney last night, shining a spotlight on her colleagues' hypocrisy, rising to a level now that poses a real-time existential threat to democracy. Almost every one of my colleagues knows in your hearts that what happened on January 6th was profoundly wrong. You all know that there is no evidence of widespread election fraud sufficient to have changed the results of the election. The change of heart among McCarthy and the rest of the GOP leadership to not hold Donald Trump accountable for his actions, but expel him from the party like a mutant virus is puzzling to the extreme. In the days that followed January 6th, Trump was a near-universal pariah. Even those who proudly wore MAGA red looked sconce. It was obvious to nearly everyone what happened was beyond the pale. I mean, you could hear it in their voices on those tapes. They were angry, but they were also frightened. Later after this call, I'm gonna get another briefing from the FBI. When we say a member's name, when we incite or we, in our hearts, maybe we think we aren't doing it. This is not the moment in time to do it. Watch our words closely. Do not raise another member's name on a television. And I'm just warning you right now, don't do it. McCarthy encouraged his team to keep an eye out for examples of inflammatory rhetoric. The group discussed examples. Matt Gates on Newsmax disparaging Cheney for criticizing Trump's pre-January 6th behavior and Mo Brooks's comments at the rally outside of the White House on January 6th, during which he announced that American patriots start taking down names and kicking ass. And Louis fucking Gohmert's remarks a few days before, in which he suggested that courts refusing to intervene on Trump's behalf meant that you gotta go to the streets and be as violent as those who rioted the prior summer. Okay, the other thing I wanna bring up and I'm making some phone calls to some members. Um, I just I just got something sent now about Newsmax that Matt Gates said where he's calling people's names out saying an anti-Trump in this type of uh, atmosphere um, in some of the other places. This is, this is serious stuff people are doing that has to stop. Um, I'll make individual calls. Mo, Mo and, uh, and Louis' comments too, a lot of members have said some real concerning things about. Did they say something? Did they say something today too? Not that Louis was at. I mean, um, Mo was at the rally. You know, the we're, we're kicking ass and taking names thing at the Trump rally. Uh, well, these are things the before they kicked that ass. Okay. What, I, what did Gates say? Hey, yeah, Gates said Gates brought up Liz specifically. I just saw that on Twitter. Yeah. 
But I guess that was just all a dream or a big fucking lie because we all know what happened next. A new lie was beginning to take hold, one that would go a long way towards the GOP's repeated efforts to whitewash what happened that day. The idea that this is somehow Nancy Pelosi's fault is a Republican's clumsy attempt to try to whitewash what happened on January 6th. We're already seeing people like Senator Ron Johnson out there in Wisconsin saying he doesn't even believe that there was a violent insurrection on that day. We're seeing Republicans do what they always do, try to find another target, usually it's a female in power conveniently enough, and make it their fault. It's ridiculous, it's embarrassing, and we cannot allow the facts to be whitewashed this way with these conspiracy cloaks. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, 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 is, it is embarrassing. That lie was that the ugly, deadly violence of January 6th was perpetrated not by Trump supporters, but by Antifa infiltrators. We now have a window into how quickly leading Trump allies were constructing that lie in private communications. Newly revealed texts show that Marjorie Taylor Greene, the lie's architect, understood that Trump's supporters were responsible for the gathering threat that day, yet she quickly pivoted towards blaming Antifa. You know, I didn't like the riot at the Capitol on January 6th. I was shocked by it. I. I I couldn't believe it was happening and they they spent all day convincing me that it wasn't Antifa and I wouldn't believe it because I was like no Trump supporters don't do things. At 2.28 p.m. while the insurrection was in full swing, Green texted Meadows to say please tell the president to calm people, adding that this isn't the way to solve anything. She knew the rioters were people who would listen to Trump. But then at 3.52 p.m., Green texted Meadows again. Mark, we don't think these attackers are our people. We think they are Antifa, dressed like Trump supporters. Boom! What was once a MAGA insurrection had now become another false flag operation. We're so confused. We thought Antifa was breaking in or BLM because of those were the riots that had gone on and on all throughout 2020, day in and day out. Uh, just horrible riots all over the country, and that was the only thing that made sense to most of us. What do you mean by BLM? Uh, BLM rioters. Is that an acronym for something? Black Lives Matter rioters. The rioters that uh, were attending the Black Lives Matter protest. Green wasn't the only one. I mean, just minutes earlier, Trump advisor and human fucking testicle Jason Miller had texted Meadows to suggest that Trump should tweet that bad apples like Antifa or other crazy leftists had infiltrated the alleged peaceful protest by Trump supporters. Before long, the Antifa lie was in full swing. That evening on Fox News, one fucking show after another featured speculation or outright assertions that Antifa was to blame, including on programs hosted by none other than Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, and Laura Ingram. Do not be surprised if we learn in the days ahead that the Trump rioters were infiltrated by leftist extremists, tweeted Fox's Brit Hume. 
Those comments were often peppered with the even more absurd claim that Trump's supporters couldn't possibly be capable of violence. There's a word for what we just saw, Angelo. It's gaslighting. Mm. And now, thanks to these texts, we have the evidence, the clear evidence for that gaslighting. That's right. And on, and on January 6th itself, the same day that they were sending these text messages, all three of these individuals, Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, and Brian Kilmeade, went on Fox News. And while they were telling Donald Trump that, that he needed to call up his supporters, they were telling Fox News viewers and the rest of you know, the American public by extension um, that the people that were actually attacking the Capitol were not Donald Trump supporters, but actually, actually secretly Antifa or Black Lives Matter. I mean, Laura Ingram called in, Sean Hattie did a show that night, Brian Kilmeade did the same thing. So they recognized in real time that this was actually Trump supporters, and yet they spent an enormous amount of effort that very day lying, um, explicitly saying and blaming this on Antifa and Black Lives Matter. Remember the larger context. By the time of the attempted coup, right-wing media figures and assorted Trump propagandists had been claiming for months that Antifa was not a small, loosely connected group of people who liked to engage in ugly street violence, but a highly organized terrorist organization that had committed enormously destructive actions across the country. So. When an actual violent assault on political order and civil society was incited by Trump and carried out by Trump's supporters on January 6th, and Republicans were desperate to insulate Trump and his movement from responsibility, they knew exactly which lie to promote. It has been no secret that GOP leaders' evolving stance toward Donald Trump in the aftermath of January 6th was craven and despicable. You need only look at how their public comments shifted from condemnation to let's move on to re-embracing Trump. The question remains why? Is it all just pure real politic or is there something deeper and more sinister going on? Does Trump have some kind of leverage on Kevin McCarthy, on Lindsey Graham, and the other fucking toadies who continue to carry his water despite their better judgment? We'll probably never know. And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa is Lincoln Project advisor Stuart Stevens. Regarded as one of the Republican Party's most talented political gurus, a body of work that includes steering Mitt Romney's presidential campaign in 2012, Stevens may also be the GOP's most prominent defector when he abandoned his party as Trump rose to power. He despises the former president in a way that feels strikingly personal. While the Lincoln Project argues that Trump is perverting the Republican Party, Stevens doesn't think Trump has perverted anything. Trump is the Republican Party, Stevens believes, and the Republican Party is Trump. He thinks that there is no reclaiming his former party. It must be burned down to the ground. Or to use a Vietnam-era metaphor, the village must be destroyed in order to save it. Reflecting on a four-decade career in American politics, Stevens is convinced that Trump was not an aberrant zigzag. He was fate. I saw a lot of this stuff, but I just chose to believe that this kind of dark side was the recessive gene, not the dominant one, he says. I was wrong. 
Stephen joins me today on Mea Culpa amidst what appears to be another Republican freefall as the Kevin McCarthy tapes reveal the craven nature of the GOP as it struggled with how to proceed in the aftermath of January 6th, knowing it was their rhetoric which catalyzed the violence. He sees no bright path forward, only the doom and end of democracy unless America pushes back against the authoritarian tied with vehemence. Today is a real lesson in politics from the mind and mouth of one of the last good men in politics. Only on mea culpa. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Stuart, you recently tweeted that you called your last book, It Was All a Lie, because it's all a lie. Right? So what went through your mind when you first heard the tapes, for example, of Kevin McCarthy, who was vehemently discussing, you know, how to remove Trump from office, only to then deny that he ever said such a thing, despite the cold, hard proof of, unfortunately for him, a tape? How many times have you heard people say one thing about Trump in, in private and another in person? I mean, another in public. Um, it's just all about power, Michael. It's not about uh, power to any purpose, particularly, except maintaining power. Um, you know, in any sort of civil society, Kevin McCarthy would be shamed. Um, but, th but there is no shame factor here. There's nothing that's going to trip them over. Um, it's extraordinary. You know, how many times? It's a great question. How about a lot? Or is that <laughs> meme of me keeps going around uh, more, right? More. Yeah, definitely more than that. You may even recall Chris Cuomo on CNN released a tape where we, I was talking to Trump about Alan Weisselberg and about um, making the payment at that time, it was to David Pecker for $150,000 that was to go to Karen McDougal. In essence, it was to pay Pecker back for the $150,000 that they laid out. And then Rudy, the jerk-off Kaludi Giuliani, right, he comes out and he says, well, I transcribed the tape, and I've transcribed thousands of tapes, and Cohen is the one that said we should pay in cash, when in fact it was Donald Trump who made the statement we should pay in cash. Now, the thing that always, you know, I questioned was where was Trump going to get 150000 in cash and who's going to make the drop? You know, like this is some sort of a hostage <laughs> drop. I mean, I a lot of people that what I thought was extremely interesting was um, and I expected it from her. You know, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts then, you know, was speaking to I think it was Dana Besh on CNN when she turned around and she made a statement that, you know, Kevin McCarthy is a liar and a traitor. This is outrageous. And that is really the illness that pervades the Republican leadership right now, that they say one thing to the American public, um, something else in private, right? That's exactly the point that you're trying to make. What they do is they, they lie to the American public about things that they're saying about Donald. Yeah, I mean, look, one of the realities here is, I mean, how many campaigns were we involved in, Michael, where, you know, Elizabeth Warren was on the other side? because of ideology. Um, I mean, she is a true liberal and she can articulate that, that well. And what has happened, I think, is if you believe in a conservative philosophy in America, it's been completely destroyed because you have to give Elizabeth Warren credit. She has a coherent theory of government. You may not agree with it. You may, not dis you may, may disagree with it, but she can argue with you and she can make it coherent. And she's speaking the truth. 
I mean, Kevin McCarthy is a liar, and he is engaged in activity that directly contradicts the oath of office that he took. He, he should resign. I mean, when this came out, in a normal sort of political system, I mean, in England, the way it certainly used to be, should have resigned. Um, but there is no value in truth in the Republican Party. How sad is that? Now, you know, you and I first met uh, through during the Romney campaign. Right. And, you know, one of the things that I remember uh, specifically stating to you is that I found the whole thing very difficult for me personally, being I've been a Democrat my entire life. But I do have to say that I find Mitt Romney to be neither Republican, not independent, nor Democrat. He's just a guy who cares about America. And it was one of the reasons why I, you know, that I tried to support Mitt Romney. It wasn't simply because Donald or at the time Woody Johnson had asked me to do it. It was simply because after meeting him and after meeting Ann and all of the kids, I really found that he had similar values to the way I was brought up. And I love the relationship that he had with his wife and his children. And I love the way he spoke about the country. And that was really important, you know, for me when I was making that decision. But in furtherance of what what Elizabeth Warren said, and I this to me was important, they understand that it's wrong what happened, an attempt to overthrow our government, and that the Republicans instead want to continue to try to figure out how to make the 2020 election different instead of spending their energy on how it is that we go forward in order to build an economy, in order to make this country work better for the people who sent us to Washington. Shame on Kevin McCarthy. And it's about time. People, and I don't care, Republican, Independent, Democrat, as long as they're calling a spade a spade, as long as they're calling the reality, shame on Kevin McCarthy, who lied about the statements that he made about Trump. The tape gets released. He still continues to deny it. They play the tape, and then he sits there scratching his head. Um, you know, uh, that's they're taking it out of context. They're not. No, I look. It, it. What can you say about a world in which these fundamental values of what it means to exist in a civil society are not held by a major political party? I mean, the key to any democracy is somebody has to be willing to lose. And, you know, I, I worked my heart out for Mitt Romney, but, and I, I thought he'd make a, a wonderful president, but I never feared for the country if we lost. And that's the way it should work. I mean, it, it, it's okay. We presented a view, uh, President Obama, more people voted for President Obama. Okay. I mean, Mitt Romney called him that night, conceded very graciously went to see him at the White House later. I mean, this is how, our, and, and that's hard. You know how hard it is when you've been out there for two years, uh, you know, 19 hours a day, and you go and be gracious, but that's what you do. And he, he wanted Barack Obama to be a successful president. Absolutely he wanted that. And, you know, one of the things about this moment now, I, I think that people do have a better sense of Mitt Romney's humanity that here is a person who is thinking about these decisions, who cares about the country. Um, you, you know, that sort of hothouse, join the club 
pressure inside the Senate. The, it's a team effort, all of this. For Mitt Romney to be like the only person standing there applauding uh, Judge Jackson's historic uh, nomina uh, nomination and uh, assessment to the Supreme Court, it's, it's incredibly powerful and moving and important. And that's what the Republican Party should be. It shouldn't be about debating what is truth and not truth. It should be about debating what is a better philosophy of government. And we just don't have that now. It's one, one party is a pro-democracy party still, and that is the big D Democratic Party. And the other party is really an autocratic movement. Well, you could say whatever you want about Mitt Romney and Joe Biden, but the way that, I'm sorry, and uh, Barack Obama, but the way that they behaved, you know, whether you were the winner or the loser, were the way that it should be, like gentlemen, right? Because they're going to have to then work together. Mitt is a senator and Biden. Think about what kind of an asshole you have to be to want to see your country burned down to the ground because yeah. you lost an election. Seriously? So the hundreds of years in the existence, the Constitution, our democracy, this our standing in the world means nothing simply because you lose an election. And so I knew how Donald was going to react, which is why I stated before the House oversight. You predicted yeah, it. Because 100%. I understand. I understand the animal Right. That that walks in his Brioni suit. I know exactly, you know, I know exactly who he is and what he's trying to do. And I understand his game plan as well as he does, because nothing is really new with him. Everything is just regurgitated bullshit over and over again. The only difference now is that he has a whole slew of Republicans that have figured out how to make money and to how to retain power by basically continuing with the big lie and Donald's bullshit stories. But I want to ask you this, Stuart, for a second. What I don't understand is the lack of consequences for McCarthy, right? He stood up and he lied right to the American, right to the American people's face. Now, the cowardice and the moral rot on display is just so obvious. And despite all the commentating, nothing really happens. The GOP base seems to basically delight in the fact that he's lying. And Trump or the GOP, that they have so successfully made an enemy out of the press or the New York Times for that matter and other organizations, that anything that they report becomes suspect if, not, you know, if it's not broadcast on Fox News. How do we, as Democrats, overcome or repair this problem? You know what? Let's not even say as Democrats. How do we as Americans overcome or repair this problem? Listen, I think there's only one way. I think it's to defeat the Republican Party as it exists now, because it's not going to reform itself. I mean, look at Mitch McConnell. He, he goes to sleep January 5th, 2021, majority leader. He wakes up January 6th, minority leader. His colleagues are running for their lives. Uh, he still won't vote to convict Donald Trump. Who he then goes out and says was responsible for it. So there's nothing that the I am not of the belief that there is a Republican Party as it currently exists worth saving. So, you know, there's sort of a little debate among people who are anti-Trump about this. So you, you take maybe there's, I don't know, eight, nine Republican congressmen, uh, senators who would vote to do the right thing out of an entire party. So 
85% of the party is, is completely Trump. So if you really work hard, maybe you can make that 80% of the Trump or the party isn't Trump. I think it's more efficient just to defeat these people. Um, and that is what people fail to understand is something that you know probably better than anyone else in the country. Right? What will happen if Donald Trump is, is elected again? I mean, you know, I think we have a difficulty talking about this because it sounds alarmist. It sounds kind of crazy. But I think it is, it's like a pandemic. Whatever you say at the beginning is, is going to seem alarmist, but at the end is going to be inadequate. And I believe that if Trump wins, or even if a DeSantis, because he's completely become just a person who will say anything, um, I think it'll be the last election that really resembles anything that we've known in our lifetime. Such a great point to bring up because you're right. I actually do know Donald probably better than anyone, yeah. right? And I can tell you emphatically that if Trump should by chance run, which I, again, I don't believe he will, and I hang on to that hope, but if he runs, and if God forbid a million times the man wins, you're going to see an exact duplicate of Vladimir Putin in the White House. You're going to see an exact duplicate of Kim Jong-un in the White House, of Mohammed bin Salman in the White House, you know, Erdogan, Duarte, any one of these dictators, monarchs, you know, um, autocrats. That's what Donald is going to become. You know, he scratches his head and he says, wait, how could Vladimir Putin control and own 25% of every business in Russia. Why can't I do that? So the guys like Jeff Bezos, the guys like, you know, um, Elon Musk that are sitting there, oh, we, should, we have to get Donald Trump back onto, you know, Twitter. I'm going to buy Twitter for $43 billion and so on and put him back on. Do that. Do that. Because the first thing that he's doing is taking 25% of your company. But the difference though is because Vladimir gets 25% and Donald of course is substantially smarter than Vladimir Putin because he has an uncle that was a scientist at MIT. So far I'm not really sure anybody has ever verified that either, but because Donald has smart people in his family, he too is as we like to say in Yiddish, he's a tamuchacham, right? He's a he's a know-it-all of everything. And he he's going to end up taking 50% of their company. And there's not going to be a goddamn thing that they can do about it. So while they sit there and that they want to play into this crazy carnival barking motherfucking lunatic, he's going to come after them. You see, Donald has no loyalty to anybody. Yeah, great. You got me back on Twitter. You're worth how much? $310 billion? Nah, that's too much money for any one person to have. I'm taking half. And that's what he's going to do. And then from your remaining $150 billion, 50% of it has to go to Uncle Sam. And then he's just going to so slowly and slowly, you know, take everything. Because Donald doesn't care about the Constitution. All he cares about is the almighty dollar. And he's willing to do anything in order to get it. Listen, one of the things that I think is so critical to what how this is going to play out is whether or not corporate America wakes up and asks themselves collectively, would you rather be a CEO in America today or in Russia today? 
which one is, is you know, things are pretty good now for these people in America. And the system has worked well for them. And the system that Donald Trump would want. I mean, look at Ron DeSantis. He's using the power of the state as much as he can to punish Disney because Disney dared to disagree with him. Um, he, he goes out and holds a press conference uh, saying uh, has no, he has no control as governor of Florida over the board of Twitter. He attacks them for, for an action they took that they thought was in the best of the country. You know, this idea that used to be this fundamental principle of being a conservative that you know, the heavy hand of government would stay away from business as much as possible. And you would have regulation for safety and all this. But other than that, let the magic of the marketplace work. It was always a lie. And, and look at I mean, what, what DeSantis is doing is, I think the difference between it and what Castro did is I think Castro actually thought for a while that he was helping other people. I don't think DeSantis even entertains that fantasy. It's just all about punishing enemies. So when you look at these companies like Toyota and others that have continued to give money to those that voted not to certify the election, it's, it's absolutely not in their best interest. I mean, wake up and look at where this could head. And, and all they need to do, Stuart, is look at me. Look at what happened to me when the Department of Justice with a corrupt and a complicit attorney general decided that I was going to be their target to be unconstitutionally remanded back to prison because I refused to waive my First Amendment constitutional right. rights. And you think, Stuart, that you or any one of our listeners are any different? You think that any of these Democrats that, you know, like a Nancy Pelosi or, you know, you take an Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff, a, you know, just anyone, um, you know, any one of these Democrats and what do you think is going to happen? The same thing will happen to them. And people scratch, oh, stop it. It's not true. It's not possible. It is possible under a Trump administration. He's already shown you what he can do. And don't take my word for it. Rejudge Alvin K. Hellerstein's decision. And it's why I brought the lawsuit against the United States government, against Donald Trump, against Bill Barr, Michael Carvajal, you know, um, James Petrucci, and, you know, a whole slew of other lower level individuals because if they can do it to me rest assured they can do it to you and if donald becomes president again the constitution doesn't exist it doesn't exist in his mind unless it benefits him and that's the danger we've had you know 44 presidents before him adhere to the rule of law, the three parts of government, right? You have the legislative, judicial, and the ex judiciary, and the executive branches, all working together for the benefit of the American people. But that not in Donald's head. It's a one, it's a one branch system. And he, who, and this is not my words, these are his words. Isn't the president like the king? I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. That's not how America was founded. And God willing, that's not how America is going to be after the next set of elections. Listen, where I really place the fault here, Michael, is not so much Donald Trump being Donald Trump, because he is Donald Trump. He's never going to change. It's the Republican Party. In our system, parties have to form a circuit breaker function. And going back to December, I think it was 5th, was it, 2015, when Trump came out for a Muslim ban, 
Right. A Muslim ban is nothing but a religious test. How do you tell if somebody's a Muslim? Exactly. I always think about, you know, the old uh, singer and uh, English folk singer, Cat Stevens, who became a Muslim. Like, what do you do if Cat Stevens shows up at Heathrow and goes, well, actually, I'm a Quaker now? What are you going to ask him questions like trivia questions about William Penn to see if you're I mean, it's a religious test. So if Republicans stood for anything that they said that they stood, it was in the Constitution. And the Republican Party should have at that moment come forward and said, we can't stop voters from doing what they're going to do. They're going to do whatever they want. But we are not going to back Donald Trump if he is the nominee. That's what Reince Priebus should have said. And if Trump went on to win, Priebus should have resigned. And if he did that, Priebus would be a hero now. Um, they, I, we all know why they didn't. It's sort of the inability to imagine Donald Trump has always enabled Donald Trump. People couldn't imagine the guy who talked in public about having sex with his daughter being a Republican nominee. They couldn't remember, imagine someone after the Access Hollywood taste being president. We couldn't imagine what would happen if he lost, not a close election, what Republican senators would do. You couldn't imagine the attempt, a violent overthrow of the United States government on January 6th. And it's that lack of imagination that I think has always benefited autocrats. And and because those of us who support democracies have the naive view that this is uh, some natural order, and it's always going to be this way. See, you blame the Republicans. I blame the Democrats. The Republicans will be the Republicans. It's, it goes back to the, you know, the, the old story, right, of the scorpion and the frog. You're going right. to ask Republicans to do the right thing when <laughs> after watching Donald Trump fleece his followers oh, to the tune of $250 million, then having to return 150 because he fleeced them in a way that was illegal, right? You know, in order to click a box that you couldn't find on page like 36 out of 70 um, in order for it not to keep charging your credit card on a monthly basis. The Democrats haven't done shit about it. Merrick Garland still sitting. You, me, everybody, we're all sitting. Republicans, Democrats alike, those that are not supporters of Donald. What are we saying? We're saying, okay, we know that you've now met with a thousand different people for the January 6th committee, right? God knows how many hours worth of testimony, how many millions of documents. Well, where's the freaking indictments already? And then even myself, I am so frustrated with the system, whether it's under Republican or worse, under Democratic control, you can't get a FOIA document to save your life. I can't get my own documents in order to be able to demonstrate. So now we went to the court and the court has now ordered certain discovery. So we'll ultimately get it. It's you can't get ahead of the system. It's almost as if the system is protecting itself with some sort of an iron dome. What's up? We're Hero the Band. Stars of Sonic Elite. It's a podcast. And a soundtrack. A sci-fi time travel musical adventure. About us. Hero the Band. Four blood brothers from Decatur, Georgia, who love making music. Featuring collaborations with our co-stars, Trippy Red and Blanco Brown. Also starring the one and only Anthony Anderson. Ha ha! I told you we'd go on some adventures. Listen to Sonic Leap on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you find great podcasts or stream great music. It's Sonic Leap, baby. One love. Why do you think the Democrats are like that? Why do you think there's been this reticence 
to go out. Why do you think the committee hasn't done more? What is what is your your take on this, Mike? You know, look, when I speak to people, some of the comments that I hear back from them is that's because they're all fucking dirty. All the politicians are dirty. And they're afraid that if they do it to Donald, as soon as Joe Biden is out of office, they're going to go right after him. And then they'll go after Pelosi and they're going to go after, you know, Jim Jordan and every single one of them. You know, I want you to think about this for a second, too. Right. When it comes to Republicans that are running in the midterm elections, I think that there's like a dozen, a dozen Republicans that all have criminal records behind them. There's this girl, Danielle Neuschwanger, right, from Colorado, three times, right, with restraining orders and so on against her. Then, of course, you have, um, you know, Matt Gates. We all know about that underage sex trafficking. You have Lauren Boebert, who's made a history of arrests. I think, you know, th- there's a whole slew of her. And then there's, you know, menacing charges by some Rhode Island, you know, um, member of... I, I, it's unbelievable the number of... R- Individuals that want to represent this country that have these wacky sort of law. And I'm not talking about a DUI. I'm not talking about, you know, a fight with your next door neighbor and so on. I'm talking about like exposing yourself to young children like Matt Gates, underage sex trafficking, uh, you know, all sorts of crazy sort of crimes that you would think would preclude anyone from running for office, right? Because it is supposed to be about your, you know, your integrity, about your belief system. These people are all just fundamentally screwed up. And what are they doing? They're taking playbooks. They're taking Donald's playbook and they're taking plays out of it in order to benefit themselves. And I know it because I wrote the playbook for Donald and I see exactly what they're doing. Ron DeSantis is no better with the nonsense. Don't say gay law. Do you really care? All of a sudden now there's a big, you know, there's a big stampede of Republicans. They're freaked out that Mickey is going to be, you know, sleeping with Pluto in Cinderella's castle. I mean, the nonsense that comes out of these people's mouths. It's like, you know, oh, well, now all of a sudden, you know, you're going to find out that Goofy, you know, is um, androgynous, right? I mean, it's, it's, in, it's incredible. You know, he's um, gender neutral. It's so stupid. And now, you know, who do you think is going to end up paying for Ron DeSantis's, you know, stupidity? It's going right. to be the people that go there, the customers of Disney. Do you really think that Disney is not going to make a profit? And the taxpayers of Florida. Amen. So where do you think, what, 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 where do you think it heads, Michael? How do you think this plays out? Well, it's one of the reasons why I keep Maya Culpa going, because I don't consider Maya Culpa to be just a podcast. I... I'm trying to use mea culpa to create a movement. If if the American people do not open up their eyes and, you know, I don't care if you need, you have to go to the local pharmacy and buy Visine. I don't care if you have to go to your ENT doctor and wash out your ears so that you can hear the tapes of people like Meadows. You can open your eyes and you could see the level of, you know, of um, stupidity that's going on, you know, with this Republican Party, with the nonsense, you know, starting from Donald all the way down the road. If they don't do that, the midterm elections will go as people are predicting, which is in the Republican right. favor, which of course will make Joe Biden into a you know a lame duck president. Chances are, if they take the the House, uh, the Senate, 
you know, there's chances that they're going to then push for, obviously we know the House is going to immediately file articles of impeachment because everybody's worried about Hunter Biden's laptop. Mind you, they have all the documents that's inside that laptop, but nobody's worried about Jared Kushner taking $2 billion plus from Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. Nobody's worried about that. You really? Do you think that Mohammed bin Salman likes his fucking dimples? Right? What do you think is the reason why the only one that he would speak to after the Jamal Khashoggi killing was Jared Kushner? And no one, no one's interested in that? Look, Merrick Garland, and I say this on just about every show, I'm so frustrated by him. Either do your job or fucking resign. Let somebody get in there who wants to do the job to hold people accountable. You cannot sell out America for $2 billion for your own benefit, Jared. You just can't do that as a senior advisor to the dumbest president on the planet. You just can't do that. And somebody has to hold somebody accountable other than me, a guy who paid $130,000 to a porn star, not to talk about the president's mushroom pecker. That's really all that it's about. So let me ask you this. Do you have any hope that when the January 6th committee finally does its primetime show, that it's going to capture people's imagination in any way like the Watergate did? No. And actually, I would compare it not to Watergate. Watergate captured people's attention on both sides. Let's look more at the Mueller report. The Mueller report captured no one's attention. Why? Those people that were Trump supporters, they didn't give a shit what the documents said. And those people that are Trump detractors, they also didn't care. They wanted him held guilty. They wanted Mueller to refer it to the Justice Department for prosecution. And what ended up happening? They No, 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 no. That's for Congress to decide. Well, I don't know. I, again, I'm, I'm just, I'm disenchanted. And it's why I ask all of my listeners... Join this movement that we are creating. Make sure that you get out and vote, but not just you, your neighbors, your sisters, your brothers, your cousins, your mothers, your fathers, aunts, uncles. It doesn't, it doesn't make a difference. Anyone that you see on the street, make them vote. Make them vote for people who have some sense of, of right and wrong. People who aren't going to yep. go down the, you know, the shithole that, that I went that I went down, you know, in the service of a guy who legitimately wants to be your king. Now, if that's what you want, you're in the wrong country, but that's what the man wants. But let me move on for a second here, Stuart, because you've said, you know, you've said about the new extremist GOP that you can't negotiate with evil. Now, that there is no, you know, meeting that these people, um, where you can meet them halfway, right? The only way forward is to beat them at the ballot box. Now, in my mind, it's so obvious. But we're right now in a situation where the GOP is poised to return to the majority in both the House and the yep. Senate. And I, as I just said, I find that absolutely terrifying. Now, I'm curious how you feel about the midterms and what our next two years will be like under a Republican majority. And is there anything that the Democrats can do at this point to, you know, to right the ship into the right path? Look, I, I, I think... You know, politics is the most insane business in the world, as you know. And I've been involved in a lot of races that we ended up winning where we were a lot more more behind now than the Democrats are. So, yes, it is theoretically possible. Look at what happened in France. I mean, there, you can draw pretty direct analogies. You have a very unpopular leader. You had inflation. You had immigration as a real problem. 
what the Democrats have to do is they have to make this a choice, not a referendum on Biden. Right. They have to make it a choice. They have to put it out there what you're going to get. So you look at this plan that Rick Scott put out as a Republican 11 point plan. It's the most extraordinary document in a political sense I've ever seen in so much as he brags about the fact that half of Americans don't pay income tax and we're going to change that. So he literally is promising to raise taxes on half of America. Now, if the Democrats can't run on that, you have a plan that is immensely popular. The Democrats want to tax billionaires. I mean, every time I've ever seen polling on that, it was like off the charts. Of course, nobody knows any billionaires. So of course we're gonna want to, you know, let's tax them. Republicans are against it. So there is a formation, there, there, the, an ability here to make this a choice. You have uh, the pro-Putin party in the Republican party. You have uh, the, the party that uh, impeached Donald Trump because he tried to blackmail Zelensky into not uh, giving him weapons until he made up some dirt about Joe Biden. Um, so they have to go out and quit defending themselves and they have to attack. They have to attack uh, Republicans for what they say they will do. They say that they will impeach immediately. And it's not gonna be McCarthy, Speaker of the House. It's gonna be Jim Jordan. They're gonna put McCarthy's head on a spike. <laughs> and he knows this, which is why, you know, he's out here trying to do everything he can. And no, he, 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 one thing that you have any democratic movement, right? In the history of you know, Western civilization, no, any democratic movement, which is what the Republican Party has become, became more democratic in power. You elect the National Socialist, and there's this myth that somehow the office will make people more serious. You, you heard this a million times about your, you know, our pal Donald. Well, once he's elected president, the presidency will somehow imbue him with a gravitas. No, not at all. It's not going to happen. And you, you elect these Republicans, they're only going to be able to use the levers of powers to, to more hurt democracy. So Democrats have to go out and attack. They have to make it a choice. They have to be unrelenting about not giving any ground on this. And they have to make it a referendum on democracy, a referendum on patriotism, a recommend, referendum on what's happening with the economy. I mean, there basically is functional no unemployment now in the country. I mean, it, the, the economy is good. Inflation's a problem, yes. Gas prices are a problem. Republicans have no plan to make that better. Um, so I, I think you just have to, in each of these races, um, go out and make it clear, this is what you're going to get with Republicans. You're going to pay more in taxes. They've already said it. Billionaires are going to pay less in taxes. Look what happened the last time Republicans controlled. They cut taxes on billionaires. They cut taxes on those who made the highest. Now we have this you know, the deficit increased the most under Donald Trump, any president in history of the United States. How do they want to uh, uh, compensate for that? They want to raise taxes on half of America. So I think that's what you have to do. Um, you have to attack, attack, attack. Yeah, I, I hate to say it. I think it's more than that. And the notion that Jim Jordan could be the speaker 
scares the living piss out of me. First of all, there are a few things. Yeah. There are a few things that we know. Jim Jordan was involved in communications with Mark Meadows on the January sixth, you know, attack on our capital. And you know, I understand that there's like thousands of text messages now um, from Meadows that is being released to the January 6th committee. And I suspect, you know, in time that we'll receive that as well. My feeling is as follows, right? You know, you got to look at history in order to figure this whole thing out. Because the betting money right now is that the Republican Party will be the winner of the, you know, on, um, on election night for definitely the House and possibly the Senate as well. You know, the only the only chance that we have is that it's eight months, give or take, to the November midterm elections. And eight months, as you know better than even I, in politics, eight months is a lifetime. So what can happen? What they have to stop allowing are the Republicans to come up with these blanket bullshit statements that make you feel good right now. So Michael Cohen today is announcing that I'm going to be running for the presidency of the United States of America in 2024. And when I run, my platform is I'm going to balance the budget. It's easy. It's easy. I'm going to do it in a year. Right. And gas prices. I know how to bring gas prices down to three dollars, two dollars a barrel. We have two hundred and sixty four billion barrels of oil in America untapped. I'm going to tap that and I'm going to do it in an environmentally responsible way. And crime under me, there will be no crime, no more shootings in the street. Right. And you sit there and everyone's like, Holy shit, right? I, I mean, is this like the second coming of Christ? That, that, I mean, this guy's going to be able to do all that and more, and I'm going to fix the immigration problem. I don't know if we're going to build a wall, right? I'm, we have parts of the wall that need to come back up because they fell down, and, you know, a country without borders, quite <laughs> frankly, isn't a country, but we need to come up with a sensible immigration problem. And I already have the ideas on what needs to be done to do this. And as far as, you know, um, you know clean environment, and and um, you know uh, you know making sure that we control um, you know the heating up of our planet and so on. I've got an answer for that too. And of course they would say, Mr. Cole, why don't you tell us? I can't tell you now, but when I'm elected, I'm going to implement all of these one, two, three, one, two, three, and you're going to see the greatest America ever in the history of America. And that's the sort of bullshit lines that Donald taught these GOPers. Right. In order to keep running on promises that you cannot you cannot fix, especially somebody with the intellect of a Donald J. Trump and especially the morons that were surrounding him from his own mishpacha over there between, you know, Ivanka and Jared, um, all the way to rancid penis as his chief of staff. This is no joke. Right. I mean, you know, you have it, it was a conglomerate of buffoonery. And unfortunately, Hook, line, and sinker. Too many people fell for it, and they continue to fall for it today. Yeah, look, um, what I always thought about Trump is there's the politics that we grew up thinking was the best policy is the policy that spoke to that which was supposed to be the best within us. That, you know, an aspirational politics, that it was supposed to rise up. And that's how we're going to have this shining city on a hill. What seemed to me that Trump, and you know this better than, than anyone, Michael, 
what he did was he says, look, that worst part of yourself is actually the best part of yourself. The part of us that we all have that we feel, hey, I didn't get a fair shake here. You know, I, you know, going back to, you know, I should have, I, I should have been starting in the football game. I should have, you know, done better on this test or I got cheated. Everybody has that. That little surge of road rage in us that when someone cuts us off on the highway, Trump tells us that's our best self. And that we're suckers if we let that person pass us. And that's very easy. It doesn't demand anything. It's like racism, right? It's, it's easy to be racist. It, it, it requires something that is better about ourselves to look beyond this and to embrace some sort of equality. Trump is, this has now become, you know, white grievance party. And I, I think that is so incredibly destructive to what is the sort of civil good that you no longer have to be someone you, that you think is a trying to be a better person. You can be a worse person and embrace that. And Ron DeSantis is a perfect example. Here's this little bitter guy who goes after Disney. So really, the Republican Party now is in a fight with the, comp the, the happiness company? I mean, really? I mean, it's, it's insane. Um, and, you know, this is, there's always been a hate, politics of hate in America. In the 30s, there was a large fascist movement, Father Coughlin, all this. But it wasn't embraced as dogma by a national party. Now, if Lindbergh had been elected president instead of Roosevelt, would we have become a fascist country? There's a good case to be made. But that didn't happen. And I think one of the lessons to me anyway, Michael, is that old sort of high school civics lesson, we still had high school civics, that leaders matter. You know, if Romney had been elected president in 12, he would have led the party in a very different direction. And he would not have appealed to this worst side of people. Um, but now the party has become a Trump party. And it, there, there is no... I mean, they put it in writing. And they, the and they say it, and they say it with impunity because they don't believe there's any, there's any, there'll be any causation at all. But I want to ask you this, Stuart. I was hoping that you would do this. Could you unpack for my listeners this notion of there being an autocracy playbook and how it manifests in the GOP's repeated attempts to, as you say, and I'm going to quote you, destroy faith in the building blocks of civil society, education, law enforcement, press, financial institutions, and business. The idea is to destroy institutions so only a strong man can save us. Yeah, I mean, look, ultimately, you know, if you compare how Ronald Reagan ran and how Donald Trump ran, let's just stop and look at that for a second. For Ronald Reagan to be born an American was to win life's lottery. You were the luckiest person in the world. In Donald Trump's world, to be born an American, you were a sucker. There were these powerful forces out there that were taking advantage of you, like Canada. And we, he, he was going to even the score for us. He was going to settle it. And at the heart of that is a fear. And autocracies operate in a dynamic of fear. You embrace a strong man because you don't believe that the institutions that are inherent, that have been built into a society, will protect you. So the Justice Department becomes 
uh, FBI, all of these institutions, they just become dirty cops. You can't trust elections. You can't trust any of this. And so you have to, the rule of law, we've got dirty judges. It, it this idea that in here is a country where laws rule, not men. When that breaks down, you embrace autocracy. And that's exactly, if you look at what happened in Hungary. So you create all these fears. So right now, Republicans are trying to say that Democrats are pedophiles, which is the same thing as Putin saying that Ukrainians are Nazis. A Jewish president of, of Ukraine is a Nazi because it makes it impossible to negotiate with these people. If, if, if the other side are pedophiles, how do you operate with them in good faith? How do you try to come to some compromise with the pedophile? The only thing you can do is destroy them. Same with Nazis. If, if uh, Ukraine is full of Nazis, you go out and destroy them. That's the only thing you can do. So it completely changes the dynamic of a politics that was a civil society that existed in America that people would disagree. They would agree to disagree. They would accept that they're not going to get everything they want. And you could move forward to a greater good. And that pretty much is what existed um, throughout this country. I mean, we had bad moments, but since 1860 anyway. Um, and that good faith is now being destroyed by the Republican Party. And it's extraordinarily toxic. And the inability for these Republicans, many of whom I helped elect, to go out and say the simple words, congratulations, Mr. President-elect Joe Biden, you won. You know, four days after the election when it was completely clear that Biden had won without a shadow of a doubt. That's not a high barrier to defend democracy. I mean, you think about, you know, our parents and grandparents, you're not being asked to charge a beach. You don't have to take a machine gun nest. You just have to get your comm shop to say, who won the presidential race in the United States of America? And they couldn't do that. And what they said was, well, this doesn't, we're just humoring Trump. It doesn't matter. But it did matter because now we're in a situation where some large percentage of the country doesn't believe that Joe Biden is an elected, legally elected president, which means that we don't live in a democracy. Right. What Trump has done, exactly. What, what Trump has done is, you know, he's now made it so that whatever the press says or anybody says that is um, opposite of what he's saying needs to be considered suspect. And he got that playbook from Putin Right. Putin is really the master of it. Donald is just a you know, second rate imposter because what is what is Putin doing here right now in the Ukraine? Right. We're talking about Nazism, you know, the resurgence of it. Every, anybody who knows anything about the Ukraine will remember that in 1972, 1973, there was a rise and, you know, in anti-Semitism during those days. And Putin, who's a study Unlike Trump, who doesn't read shit, Putin's a study of history, which is why he chose why he chose Nazism in order to bring this this bullshit war of his. Right. Which is really only for oil. From what I understand, there's like 60 billion barrels of oil in the Donbass region, which is what he wants. And that's really what this is all about. But in 1972, 73, it was a mass exodus of Jews out of the Ukraine. Why? 
because they didn't want them there. So what's Putin doing? He's taking an issue of 50 years ago, because that's not the same Ukraine today. Right? 50 years ago, you would not have had a Zelensky as the president of the country. And not to mention, you know, I know many people that were living in the Ukraine, some of whom you know, were involved in the U.S.-American Chamber of Commerce. You know, then there was, the US, there was the Ukrainian-Israeli Chambers of Commerce. I mean, you know, there's a, there were, there, you know, it's not the same Ukraine from 50 years ago. But what Putin very intelligently is doing, he took history and he's trying to resurrect history in this negative light in order to justify these grotesque, you know, actions that he's taking right now, which are just, you know, really disgusting. But Stuart, let me ask you to jump into this for a quick second. While the GOP is foisting this poison upon America, we must deal with the fact that close to 80 million Americans voted for this kind of political paradigm. Is it possible that tens of millions of voters want this kind of American autocracy? Or is there something else that's going on here that makes this kind of rhetoric and politics popular with a broad swath of the electorate? And more importantly, what do we need to do to change their minds? Yeah, that, that, that's a, a brilliant series of questions that are really goes to whether or not America is going to survive as a democracy. Um, you know, again, this is where I fault the Republican Party, Michael, because a lot of people may have thought, OK, Donald Trump is like this weird guy. There's something about him. I don't know. But then they have their U.S. senator, if you're a Republican, who supports him. And you, go, you like that person. They seem perfectly normal. You know, Olympia Snow seems normal. And so she's going to support Donald Trump. So you buy into that. They become gatekeepers into this. Um, it's like, I don't really know this person. But then if someone you know says, well, I know this person, it's okay. It's not as bad as it seems. That gives you credibility to believe this. So I think that on the hopeful side here, right? Because ultimately, Republican Party is a white party. 85% of Donald Trump's coalition was white, okay? The country is 57% white. Of those Americans who are 15 years and under, the majority are non-white. Now, odds are really good they're going to turn 18 and still be non-white. Uh, in the latest census, only one out of 10 of the new Americans was white. And Republicans know this. So what I think what the, the role that we're in now, like with the Lincoln Project, the union, all of this, is to try to hold on to what we have to be able to pass it on. Because there is this demographic, demographic tide that's coming into the country. And uh, all the Stephen Millers in the world are not going to stop that. And Republicans know this. And it was this tragic divide that Republicans could take. Either, you know, since 1964, right, Republicans got 7% of the of black vote in the 64 election with Goldwater. From Eisenhower, they got 45%. So we fell off this cliff, the 7%, and it never came back. So Republican Party could have ask itself the hard questions of why is it that we can't appeal to more non-white votes? What is our failure? And at least in the Bush world, when I worked with this, we at least admitted this was a failure. I mean, Ken Melman went before the NAACP in 2005 and apologized for the Southern strategy. Does that matter? I think it matters, yes. But we never did the policy work that would question why is it Republicans can't appeal to non-white votes? So with Trump, we just gave up and we just embraced that. 
And Trump was able to appeal to this white grievance politics. So I think I'm a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist. If we can just hold the line here until I think it's going to probably, when is a, when is a Republican Party going to nominate someone who will assert that Donald Trump lost a legal election? That certainly isn't going to happen in 24. I can't really see it happening in 28. So I think we're in a sort of uh, 10 to 12 year span here where we have to defeat these people. We have to, or we're going to lose democracy. I mean, democracies don't die, modern democracies in violent coups usually. They die at the ballot box slowly and they die in the courtroom. I mean, that's what happened in Hungary. And it is, I mean, it's why I think you're doing what you're doing to speak truth to power, because ultimately what else can you do? And I think that there is this very human instinct that the enormity of the challenge paralyzes us. Like what can I as one person do? I mean, there's just, you have this machine out there in Fox and this right wing insanity. What can I one person do? Just as it, it's harder to think about training for a marathon than training for a 5K. It's like, holy shit, I'm going to run a marathon? Like, where do I start? And I think that we have to not let that breadth of the challenge that has to motivate us not paralyze. I think it's more than that, and, though, Stuart. It's more than just like, what can one person do? They've already seen the damage that happens to people who are trying to do. Yes. And like myself. Yeah, and right. instead of wanting to join and wanting to do it and put yourself out there as I do on a daily basis, sometimes they'd rather just become ghosts, you know, stick their head into the sand and pray that when they take their head out of the sand, like an ostrich, that everything will be back to normal. But then we've lost, as far as I'm concerned, we've lost that, that sense of normalcy. I don't think after Donald Trump with these 80 million people or so that had voted for him, even if 40 million are still Trump supporters, I think it's going to be very difficult to go back to normalcy. Hey guys, this is Scarlett Burke, star and creator of the original scripted country music series, Make It Up As We Go. This groundbreaking podcast tells the story of how the working class do their best to survive and occasionally thrive in the world of writing songs for modern country music. And we are back for season two. I'm just trying to gain hear new music from myself, Shooter Jennings, L. King, Liz Rose, Nal Rogers, and more. You can find Make It Up As We Go on SiriusXM, Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and download so you never miss an episode. But I want to ask you this because you sparked something in my, in my head there for a second. Because you've long held that January 6th was not an isolated instance of mass rage instigated by former President Trump but rather the first shot fired in a larger autocratic movement within this nation. And I truly believe that, and I talk about it a yes. lot. The coordinated effort to pass scores of anti-democratic voting measures did not happen overnight. This was all right. planned and set loose. So if you would, discuss with me how Trump fits into all of this. I mean, was he the creator and instigator of this autocratic moment? Or were there folks behind the scenes pushing for this change and found in Trump the imperfect vessel to deliver this autocratic future that, truthfully, I don't want? 
Yeah, I think it's the latter, Michael. Look, um, I think what the Republican Party realizes is exactly what the Prussian aristocracy realized in 1930s Germany, that they had lost touch increasingly with the white working class. You know, in the 30s in Germany, it was these voters are going to become Bolshevik if they don't, if we don't have someone who can connect with the working class. I think Trump's sort of genius was he understood that Republicans really didn't believe in anything but power and that he could come in and say, I will give you power. It's all transactional. And they would abandon everything that they said that they believed in. They would nominate some guy that talks in public about having sex with his daughter, and they were still the family values party. And the whole character counts thing went away. So I think they saw Trump as someone, I think the McConnells of the world saw Trump as someone that they could use and control. And that never works. And, you know, on January 6th, when McConnell and his colleagues are running for their lives, they maybe had that sense. We, 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 you know, you can't feed the alligator hoping the alligator will eat you last. And that's what they've done. Um, so the, the thing is, once a party embraces hate, it is very difficult to unwind that. And that is really the difference now. Republican Party has become really pretty much officially a white grievance party. And the Republican Party platform is whatever Donald Trump thinks. Well, it's white privilege. It's and, white privilege party, right? It's status quo yeah. party. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and and I, it, it, um, it is a sense of we can't change what America is becoming. Therefore, we can change how Americans vote. So that is our own, that's why they're so desperate about this. And the thing is, there's all these buffoonish characters out there that, that you know, you, you know so well, the, the Matt Gates or Arne Bopards or the Greens. But at the heart of this, this is not a buffoonish movement. You have all the pieces in place for an autocracy. You have a, a large propaganda wing. You have the embrace of a major political party. You have a huge finance element behind it. And you have sort of a stormtrooper element that you can call upon when needed. And those are the ingredients. Well, you missed one. That you need. And, but you missed one. And that's to take away people's First Amendment rights, like what they tried to do. You couple that yeah. onto it. But, you know, Stuart, as we're, as we're winding down the hour, the time goes by really quickly here on Maya Culpa, right? I have one last question for you. And I want to shift gears for a moment and talk to you again about Russia and Vladimir Putin. In, in a little bit of a different sense this time, because there is a virulent strand of pro-Putin politicians that exists within the GOP. Now, you have, yeah, you have linked the stance of Republicans voicing support for Putin and his larger agenda with the larger pro-autocracy movement within the United States. Now, it connects with CPAC holding its conference in Hungary and this idea voiced by the likes of Madison Cawthorn that Putin is the bulwark against a larger woke liberal elite trying to tear down traditional white Christian values, that he is this last stand against the scourge of, mod um, you know, of modern thought process. If you would, discuss this with me. Yeah, so look... Um Putin, uh, 
there, there are no gay people in Russia, according to Putin. Um, there are no minorities that are in power. When is the last time you looked at a you know ethnically diverse power group in in uh, Russia? You don't have it. There are no women in power in Russia. This is the world that they want. And you know when they, I, I say they look at Putin as this white Christian nationalist, and people go, "Well, you really think you know Putin's a, a Christian?" I go, "Have you ever heard of Donald Trump? <laughs> you really think Donald Trump is a Christian?" And it, it is a world in which they want to live in. And so Putin creates this world through this power of this fascist state. And that is exactly what someone like Ron DeSantis is trying to do in Florida. So it's going to be uh, an effort that education is dangerous. Higher education is like a gateway drug to socialism which I just find insane every time I look at, you know, I go to the Ole Miss Alabama game. It doesn't seem like a, you know, gateway path to socialism. Um, but that's, knowledge is dangerous. Books are dangerous. And that is the world they want to live in. So it's incredibly attractive to them. And dissent is something you don't have to put up with. You don't have to sit there. But look at what Ron DeSantis tried to do in this anti-demonstration uh, bill that he, he passed. So that's the model. And why is CPAC going to Hungary? They really want to be like Hungary. Because, um, because it's the same David Bossy bullshit with CPAC when he was exactly. trying to sell to Donald, you know, the you know, the, the top line, you know, where he was going to, you know, win the straw poll, whatever the hell it is that they have there at CPAC. But, you know, one of the other things that the Republicans have become so good at, right, and that's taking, again, these, these things that are on your mind that don't really seem right, and then they blow it, they blow it up, and then they, they change its meaning, they rewrite as they try to do continuously, rewrite history. Like, um, you know, I, I engaged in a conversation the other day, and I'll be real brief onto it, where they were talking about all of these assets that are being taken by these alleged Russian oligarchs. And I stand at this point, I don't believe that the United States is right or any of the other countries to just seize their assets. You know, we have laws in this country, right? You, what, would you, what would you say if they showed up, they said you were a Russian oligarch and they took your house? I don't care how much money you're worth. Fine, Elon Musk is a Russian asset. Go take his assets if he had a house. Go take Mark Zuckerberg's assets. He's a Russian asset. You know, there's a court of law that... Should and there are rules that they should be following instead of yeah and then there's people like yeah fuck them they're mega billionaires they live this incredible life with 400 foot yachts and 30 homes and 800 cars okay right there are people here in America that do the same thing but we're not going there and just taking their assets and I think that the way that the governments not just the United States but all around the world are treating it is wrong. I think what you have to do is show that it's Putin's money. You can't just say it. And I haven't seen a single shred of evidence that says that it is. And so what do the Republicans do? They jump all over it and they jump onto it for fundraising purposes. Anything that they can do that's contrarian to what Democrats are doing or saying, they jump right on. And they seem to be winning this 
this voice, this competition of who has the louder and the stronger voice on the opinions, despite the fact that what most of them are saying are absolute lies. Yeah, I mean, look, I think all the years I worked for the Republican Party and pointed out flaws in the Democratic Party, now I'm kind of on the other side. But it is much easier for Republicans to come up with a unified message because their audience is more homogeneous. Yes. So when you're appealing, to, it's like you're going to put on a concert and you're only going to invite like heavy metal fans. And that's 85% of your market. The Democrats over here, they got to do a heavy metal. They got to do jazz. They have to have classical. And it's harder to do that. It's harder to come up with a message that will unify this. Now, ultimately, that diversity is a strength because it is more like the country and it is more like what the country is becoming. But it is much more difficult for Democrats. You know, people say, well, aren't there three parties? I really think there are three parties in America. There's two inside the Democratic Party. We call it like the Biden wing and the Bernie Sanders wing. And I think how that plays out is really going to determine whether or not they're going to be able to lead the country. Um, and they need a generation of aggressive, younger Democrats who can appeal to uh across the spectrum yeah yeah and that that's going to be the test yep you are right you um, are right about that governor of colorado is, is a good example i mean he's out there mocking desantis um that that's what they need and i hope to god they can they can come up and that's it. why again here on mayor culpa you know we're trying to create this into a movement so again i implore everybody to get out there listen to what stewart's saying the guy knows better than all of us you got to get out you got to vote and you got to vote with your you know with your conscience you got to vote for you know who's who's going to help to bring america right back you know to some sense of normalcy and stewart with that i want to thank you for your time uh really great to see you it's been a while uh especially <laughs> I've been out of town for a little bit, so uh, it's been it's been a while. But it's great to see you, and it's great to uh, to talk to you. And I certainly hope to have you back on uh, Maya Culp again very very soon. Thanks, Michael. I, I admire what you're doing so much. Man. Well, thank you. And I, like I said, we have a lot of work to do for the upcoming midterms. So I'll be speaking to you soon. All right, thank you, pal. And now for today's Maya Culpa. In speaking with Stuart Stevens, I'm reminded that Trump was not an aberration. A thesis has emerged of late that Trump is a kind of accident of history. Remove Trump from the equation and the party will heal itself. This presumes, of course, that there are figures within the party who are capable of curing the GOP of its infatuation with authoritarianism. I would have believed that possible if we had not witnessed the expulsion of Liz Cheney from her leadership position and the banishment of Adam Kinzinger to the political wilderness. In addition to the RNC supporting Trump's coup attempt and the resultant insurrection, add to that a perverse and nihilistic love affair with Vladimir Putin, and I'm afraid Stevens is correct. Trump has completely subsumed the Republican Party like a boa constrictor swallows a fucking pig. The takeover has been so complete and so total that there is no difference between the party and the person. And that, my friends, is the essence of dictatorship, or what Stevens calls the authoritarian playbook. 
Trump and his dismantling of all political norms has allowed the GOP to carry the ball down the field, dismantle our entire electoral system. In short order, they have made it harder to vote and easier to taint that vote with partisan interference. I'm afraid we will soon enter a post-electoral age where every election will see an outburst of political violence and attempt to wrest control of the vote away from the rightful winner. In their culture war, the GOP has undermined faith in all civic institutions, rendering them as somehow perverse and corrupt. All of this is fed by a steady diet of disinformation. The result is a fearful populace who all but begs for a strongman to come and make it better. Remove Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis or countless others will come and take his place. How we emerge from this death spiral is anybody's guess. I just hope everyone understands what's at stake and wakes up to the reality of what is happening. The time to act is now or it will truly be too late. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. 